Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. Something was brewing in the town of Skidmore, Missouri. Everyone could feel it. It went far beyond the usual small-town frustrations, the headbutting of neighbors who lived too close, knew too much about each other, got on each other's nerves like siblings sharing a room. This was unlike anything the townsfolk had ever felt before, a collective fury coming to a head. So when they heard that the target of their ire had been cocky enough to show up at the local tavern on the morning of July 10th, 1981, well, they decided it was time to do something about it. They surrounded Ken Rex McElroy, a man long known as the town bully, and told him he'd best leave. Ken was defiant, but not a complete idiot. He finished his drink, grabbed a six-pack to go, and climbed behind the wheel of his silver Chevrolet pickup truck. His wife, Trina, sat in the passenger seat beside him. She saw that familiar look in his eye, the one that told her his hackles were up and he was about to cause trouble, and she told him to drive away. But he didn't. Slowly, about 60 townspeople spilled onto the street. Some had guns. You sat in his car, his wife says, Dale Clements is pointing a rifle at you. Still, Ken just sat there, staring down the people he'd been tormenting for years, daring them to do something. And they did. The first bullet entered the back of Ken's skull, killing him instantly. But the gunfire didn't stop, because the people of Skidmore not only wanted to make sure the man was dead, but several of them wanted to know that one of their bullets helped do him in. It was a targeted murder. Only Ken was hit, not Trina. Done in broad daylight with dozens of witnesses. And yet, no one saw a thing. At least, that's what they told the investigators who descended on the scene. Geez, officer, I was there and heard the shots, but I never got a look at who did the shooting. And that's how an entire town got away with murder shocking the nation with a controversial case of vigilante justice that still has repercussions to this day. There aren't many people in Skidmore, Missouri, who would tell you much positive about Ken McElroy. It wasn't that he couldn't be charming or make friends. In fact, he always seemed to have a way with women, or more accurately, girls. And he could be kind to people he liked, especially people who helped him out in jams. But he could also be downright terrifying, and that's the Ken most people in Skidmore knew best. He'd been born in June 1934 to a huge family in Quitman, Missouri. And when I say huge, I mean he was the 13th of 14 children. Now, being from such a large family is obviously financially tough. I mean, anyone short of a millionaire would have trouble feeding that many mouths. 
And the McElroy family had not a millionaire in sight. Mother Mabel, nay Lister, was a homemaker, while Dad Tony was a tenant farmer, meaning he farmed for a living on land he rented from someone else. He himself wouldn't be a landowner until later. Tony didn't have many prospects outside of farming. His highest education level was the fourth grade, while Mabel dropped out after the sixth grade. According to U.S. Census data, the family bounced around primarily between Missouri, which was Tony's home state, and Kansas, where Mabel was born. If you look them up on the 1940 census, in fact, you see that of the seven kids still living with them at that time, three were born in Kansas, four in Missouri, and yet no more than two kids were born consecutively in either state. It must have been a chaotic life, moving every few years, always with a newborn in tow. When Ken was two, his parents had their final child, a son named Timmy, who reportedly was just a genuinely good kid. He was quick to help his mom around the farm, happy to pull his weight as soon as he was old enough for chores. His dad adored him, according to author Harry N. McLean in his book In Broad Daylight. That Timmy was such a good kid made it stand out all the more that Ken wasn't at all. Ken wasn't the type to help out around the farm or pitch in when his mom was overwhelmed with housework. Rather, he was the type to lure his female classmates behind a bush and do things to the girls that they were ashamed to tell their parents. The type to recruit a buddy named John to stand guard while he did those shameful things to the girls. The type to threaten anyone who dared suggest he knock it the hell off. Ken McElroy was not a nice person. In fact, he was a law-breaking bully. From a mini-documentary by the Infographics Show. Ken McElroy was a thief who threatened the lives of anyone who stood in his way. The thieving started early. It began with petty stuff, pocketing goods from area stores and the like. He wasn't one of those guys who was just too slick to get caught either. He was brazen often doing things right out in the open, almost daring someone to stop him. They rarely did. When it came to school, you could say Ken struggled, but to me that implies he tried, which he did not. His teacher found him difficult to control. He was held back in fifth grade twice. This is Todd Grande, a PhD who delves into mental health topics on his YouTube channel with nearly a million subscribers. I used him earlier this season in the Carl Panzram episode, Given his interest in that case, it's probably no surprise that he dedicated an episode to McElroy, too. Ken dropped out of school in eighth grade at age 15. By then, Ken and the aforementioned buddy John had figured out that they didn't need some fancy education to make money. Instead, they would slither through town looking for things to steal, siphoning gas from unattended cars and trolling area farms at night looking for livestock to boost and resell. And that was no easy feat, by the way. It's hard stealing hogs and cows, and Ken managed to do it in a car, not even a truck. What's even more amazing is that he got away with it time and time again. Ken was indicted many times for these various offenses, but he managed to avoid being convicted by intimidating witnesses. This spans decades, to be clear. Like, it started in his teens and kept going through his 20s and 30s and into his 40s. He never had a good reason to stop because he kept getting away with it. Ken figured two things out early in his criminal life. First, 
just being bold enough to do something, was often enough to ensure he got away with it. And people don't like confrontation. Think about it. Usually when you confront someone, they apologize or lie or at least change their behavior so as not to get caught again. Ken did none of those things. When he was confronted, he puffed out his chest and said, Yeah, so, what are you going to do about it? Most of the time, the reply was a meek, Well, nothing, I guess. And when that wasn't the reply? Another tactic to avoid jail that McElroy would employ is intimidating witnesses. To do this, he'd follow them or park outside their homes and watch them until they were no longer willing to testify against him. From BuzzFeed. His various alleged crimes include robbery, harassing slash assaulting women, destroying property, threatening lives, and assault, including shooting at least two people. One of those two people he shot was local farmer Romaine Henry, who McElroy shot in the stomach. That was in July 1976. Amazingly, Romaine Henry lived. He'd later explain what had happened. Henry had heard some commotion on his land, so he hopped in his truck to check it out. He spotted McElroy on the country road and actually decided he wouldn't even bother checking things out further because he didn't like messing with hot-headed Ken. But McElroy stepped in front of his vehicle, forcing Henry to pull over. Henry was uneasy, but figured maybe Ken needed help or had a question. Instead, McElroy angrily confronted Henry and accused him of spying on him. Henry said, what are you talking about? I haven't been spying on you. McElroy insisted. This is Henry talking. He said, well, you're a lying SOB. And and when he said that, well, then he more or less laid the barrel out shotgun right against my stomach and pulled the trigger. And when he did, why, of course, it laid my flesh all open and blew my flesh into this door here. McElroy was arrested in the shooting. Charges were filed. A trial was held. But three witnesses who had seen McElroy near the property backed out of testifying after McElroy threatened their families. Meanwhile, two of McElroy's friends testified that he couldn't have shot Romaine Henry when Henry said he had because McElroy had been with them. From a 1981 news report. How can you get witnesses to do that? Well, I suppose that, uh, I don't know, but I suppose probably money had a little something to do with it. Whatever the witness's motivation, it was enough for the jury. McElroy was acquitted. Later, a neighbor told a reporter, He told me last winter when he shot the dirty son of a bitch, that was Romaine Henry, he thought he had him shot deep enough that he'd die before he got home. He told you that? He told me that himself just last winter. Why didn't you come forward? Why, what for? The incident taught everyone a lesson. When McElroy threatened you, he might well follow through and get away with it. And Ken's love life was equally concerning. He had a preference when it came to females, and that was that he liked them young. He wasn't interested in women. He targeted girls between the ages of 12 and 14. This is his daughter, Tony, in the documentary, No One Saw a Thing. Well, it's really no big secret that Dad was seeing women that were a lot younger. 14, I would say, was probably pretty close to average. Ken's first marriage came in 1952 to a girl named Olita. He was 18 to her 16, and the two lived a few years in Colorado, where Ken worked in construction for one of his sister's husbands. At one of those construction sites, McElroy was supposedly hit in the head by falling debris. 
I mention this because people later attributed his violence to that head injury, though if you buy that, you have to ignore the fact that McElroy had a violent reputation long before then. While with Olita, he raped a 13-year-old girl named Donna and, after her grandfather barked at him to leave her alone, broke into the girl's house with some friends intending to burn the place down. They backed off when they heard Donna's uncle moving around upstairs. He was nice enough and didn't deserve to die, Ken announced. But that only spared the house. It didn't spare Donna. She got pregnant the next year with Ken's child. By 1958, Ken had ditched Donna and moved with Alita back to Missouri, back to Tony and Mabel's farmhouse. Soon, he was running around with a 15-year-old girl named Sharon. At one point, Ken and Sharon were arguing in his pickup truck. Ken pulled out a shotgun and said if she didn't shut up, he'd blow her head off, and then he nearly did. It's not clear if it was an accident or not, but the gun discharged and blew a hole in Sharon's chin. To keep her from testifying against him in an assault case, he convinced first wife Olita to grant a divorce, and he married second wife Sharon. She, too, bore Ken children, as did Sally, yet another child, this one 14 years old, who moved in with Sharon and Ken, who'd go from one to the other depending on his mood. Sharon wasn't thrilled with sharing Ken, but when she complained, Ken beat her so she didn't complain much. Sharon and Sally overlapped to such a degree that at one point, they were both in the hospital giving birth to this man's children at the same time. Eventually, those relationships ended, and Ken married a child named Alice, with whom he also had kids. While married to Alice, he met a girl named Trina McLeod, who was just 12 at the time. McElroy at this point was 35. Two years later, when Trina was 14, she was pregnant with another of McElroy's children. McElroy was still married to Alice. Trina dropped out of school and moved in with him and his wife. From No One Saw a Thing. It was an odd setup. They lived together. Their kids got on the same school bus every day. Ken treated both women poorly in front of people. Add to that the fact they were often covered in bruises, and the general understanding around town was that both women were routinely abused. Two weeks after Trina gave birth, she and Alice fled the farmhouse, seeking refuge at the home of Trina's mother and stepfather. They were only gone a few days before Ken found them and took them back home. Then, when Trina's parents were away from their home, it burned down, and someone shot their dog. Now, Trina told police at the time that Ken had burned her folks' house down, killed her dog, and also beat and raped her after dragging her home after that incident. Ken was arrested and charged again, but his defense attorney had a way of dragging things out in the courts. And before the case went to trial, Ken divorced Alice and convinced Trina to marry him. Afterward, Trina recanted her allegations. Here's Trina talking to a reporter in the early 1980s. Is it true that when you were still a schoolgirl, 16 years old, that your husband raped you? No, this is not true, no. But he was charged with rape? Yes, he was charged with it. But it's not true. You brought the charge against him? Yes, and it's not true. Why did you do it? Jealousy. I was jealous over him, but it's not true. Was your parents' house burnt down? No, it was not burnt down. It was defaulty wiring. And the records would show it's defaulty wiring. 
it was it was just a charge to more trouble like everybody usually did more trouble including you 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 yes. gave him trouble yes and it's not true it wasn't true at all No one in Skidmore believed Trina's tale of jealousy and faulty wiring. Rather, they were sure that McElroy had maybe threatened her, maybe brainwashed her, maybe both. Whatever the reason, the result was the same. The case never reached a jury. By 1980, Ken McElroy had assaulted countless girls and women, shot a man in the gut and face, shot a woman in the face, killed a dog, committed arson, and stolen livestock from area farmers. Yet, he was a free man. His dad had died in 1972, and Ken had taken over the farmhouse that he'd grown up in. Mother Mabel was still alive, living down the road with Timmy, her youngest son. The two-bedroom farmhouse initially didn't have electricity or plumbing, but Ken's hog-stealing was pretty lucrative, and over the years, he remodeled the place, adding an indoor bathroom, electrical wiring, that sort of thing. Some of the many children he sired stayed with their mothers, but some moved in with him. They earned rough reputations throughout Nottoway County. People had learned over the decades not to mess with Ken, and as the kids grew, they were generally afforded the same courtesy. But then, on April 25th, 1980, a pair of daughters stopped by a general store, and somehow, a simple piece of candy set off a series of events that ultimately proved deadly. And when something like this, the two girls, one a teenager, the other age eight, both daughters of McElroy, walked into a little store owned by Lois Bowenkamp and her husband Ernest, though he went by the nickname Bo. This being a super small town, I mean, we're talking fewer than 500 residents, the store clerk was one of Lois's best friends and neighbors, a woman by the name of Evelyn Sumi. The two daughters came up with the items they'd selected from the store shelves. The teen had several things, but the younger girl just had candy. Evelyn at first assumed that this was a joint order, but then she caught on that the older girl wasn't going to pay for the younger girl's candy. She has her own money, the older girl told Evelyn. But the younger girl said no, she didn't have her own money, and she started to cry. The older girl was kind of a punk about it, yelling at the little girl to quit her crying and grabbing the candy and tossing it back on the shelf. Well, the little girl wanted that candy, so she picked it up again and began following her big sister out of the store. Evelyn noticed and called after them, hey, the little girl still got that candy. Big sister again ripped the candy from little sister's hands and they left the store. Evelyn didn't think much of this. It wasn't a particularly pleasant encounter, but the nastiness was really between the two sisters. And then another sister walked in. This daughter of McElroy's was older than the first two, and she was pissed. How dare you accuse my little sister of stealing, she screamed. She also demanded to return the items her other sister had just paid for and said that the McElroy family wouldn't be spending any money at the Bowen Camp store again. By this time, Lois had heard the ruckus and came to the front of the store. 
At first, she tried to defuse the situation, but Evelyn kept trying to explain what happened while the McElroy kid just wouldn't stop yelling to listen. So Lois was like, sure, fine, don't spend money here, that's fine by me. After that sister left the store, Evelyn was upset. I didn't accuse the little girl of stealing, she said. I just said she still had the candy. Lois and Bo told her, we get it, it's okay, it's done now, let's move on. But the ordeal was far from over. Soon, the store door opened again, and in walked Trina McElroy, Ken's wife. Trina went absolutely ballistic, screaming and cussing at the family and of having them accuse her daughter of stealing. This is from YouTube documentary maker Cadaver. After Trina, Ken walked into the store with a knife. Both said the weapon wasn't needed, and Ken calmly said, What, this thing? I'm just cleaning my nails with it. There's no law against that, is there? Outwardly, Ken stayed calm and collected, but everyone knew his reputation. So when he told Lois he wanted to buy some cigarettes, she saw it as a power play and said, well, it's my understanding the McElroy family doesn't wish to spend money here any longer, and that suits me fine. McElroy snickered and walked away, and then went about making the Bone Camp's lives utter hell. They were repeatedly harassed by Ken and Trina, almost every night in fact. They would sit in their truck outside of the home and just watch them, every now and then firing his shotgun into the air and made sure that he was seen by them when he did it. It got so bad in fact that Bo was unable to even take care of any outside yard work needing to be done at the house. And this continued for months, all the way until July. Bo and Lois would call the police, but it seemed Ken was smart. For starters, he monitored police radio traffic, and he also knew that if he stayed on public property, the police would leave him alone. And after all, law enforcement officials were just as scared of this guy as was the rest of the town. After McElroy threatened to burn one judge's barn down, the barn indeed burned down, but instead of going after McElroy, the judge just started punting cases involving Ken to the other judges, and he wanted nothing to do with this man. No one did. Even the town marshal was scared to take him on. A one-man reign of terror in a town that just didn't know how to handle it. It seemed Ken was particularly offended that Lois, a woman, had stood up to him, declining to take his money. Though Lois and Bo owned the store together, she was really the shopkeep. She was the organized one, the more business-savvy of the two. And she had an edge to her that made it clear she had no desire to suffer fools. Bo, meanwhile, was a soft-spoken guy who usually stayed behind the store's meat counter. Ken found that unacceptable. How could Bo let a woman take the reins? How could he let Lois boss him around? He told friends that both Bo and Lois needed to be taught lessons, and his planned education for them went far beyond his late-night visits to their house. One day, he stopped Bo and Lois outside of their store. The scene is described in Henry McLean's book In Broad Daylight and dramatized, accurately, in a TV movie by the same name that came out in 1991 and starred Brian Dennehy as the Ken character. I said, is she still the boss in the store? <laughs> yeah, I guess she is. She the boss in the street, too? There is no boss on the streets, as far as I know. I'll tell you what. I'll give you $100. Cash money. 
You try to whip my old lady right here in the street. You don't have to whip her. You just have to try. Lois Bowenkamp was a matronly, heavy-set, 44-year-old woman who wore shapeless floral dresses and seemed the type to say fixin' to a lot. You know, I'm fixin' to go to the store, I'm fixin' to make dinner. She was hardly the type to agree to a middle-of-the-street brawl with a woman 20 years her junior. She found McElroy's proposal ludicrous and told him so. The stalking didn't stop. Finally, on July 8th, 1980, McElroy decided to take things to the next level. He parked in the alley behind the Bowen Camp General Store and approached Bo with a shotgun. Somehow, Bo made sense of what was happening quickly enough that he ducked. And while that didn't keep him from being blasted in the neck by the pellets of McElroy's shotgun, it probably did save his life. He was rushed to the hospital and able to name McElroy as his shooter. Townsfolk were feeling like, finally, this guy's gonna get convicted. Bo saw him clearly. The family had been reporting McElroy for stalking them for literally months, so there was a circumstantial paper trail. Everything was falling into place. The preliminary hearing was August 18, 1980, and in typical McElroy fashion, he tried like hell to scare witnesses out of testifying. This time, they wouldn't back down. For this case, as with dozens of others, McElroy turned to his trusty defense lawyer. The lawyer who got him out of most of his scrapes with the law was Richard McFadden of Kansas City. McFadden referred to himself as a hired gun, according to McLean's book, routinely distancing himself from his client's behavior, not to mention his own role in helping Ken get away with it all. As far as McFadden was concerned... Ken Rex McElroy was a perfect gentleman. He was a good client. McElroy always paid on time and paid in cash. He also denied having done anything wrong, no matter how many times he stood accused. Here's a reporter talking with McFadden about Ken in 1981. He sure needed a lawyer an awful lot. Yes, uh, and I asked him about that. And he said, well, it's a set of circumstances. He says, they're, they're trying to get me, they're harassing me. I didn't do it. But he did have a reputation for violence. He was known as the Jesse James of Northwest Missouri. I have heard him called the Jesse James of the Northwest part of Missouri. That is correct. Well, he wasn't. So he might not have been the perfect gentleman that you just said he was. I say only in his relationship with me. McFadden said his client pissed people off simply because he was fearless. In other words, anybody say, you can't go here, and it was his right to go. And it, and it wasn't a judge or somebody telling him he couldn't do it. He would go if he wanted to go. But he was more than that. He was more than just fearless. He was harassing people. And you know something? I have never been able to verify uh, these allegations that he was harassing anybody. It's not clear what proof McFadden would have needed before he believed the residents of Skidmore. And the word clearly wasn't good enough. McFadden played obtuse, but I suspect that even if everyone had had ring doorbells in the 1980s like we have now, and it caught McElroy on camera, he probably would have explained it away. I mean, this is Skidmore preacher Tim Warren describing some random time Ken and Trina showed up at his place with a machine gun. I noticed that he and and Trina were out of the truck, and he had the machine gun out and in his hand, and I had a gun with me. I didn't want to use it. But if the man would have put a clip in that gun, I would have used it. Check my family. And this is David Dunbar, who had been the town's marshal for a stint. 
up at the bar one night, he uh, caught me coming outside and pulled a gun out and was holding it there, and he asked me if I was going to testify against him. I told him I'd have to go over because I was a marshal. After the incident, Dunbar quit as marshal. He'd only been in the job six months, and he wasn't about to lose his life over it. Despite these kinds of stories, though, McFadden insisted that McElroy was a misunderstood gentleman. Now, McFadden had learned from experience that delaying McElroy's court appearances seemed to work in his favor. People forgot details or moved away or got cold feet because someone threatened to kill their whole family if they testified. So McFadden did everything he could to delay Ken's trial in the Bowen Camp shooting. He managed to punt it until June 25, 1981, so a full year after the shooting. This time, McElroy didn't try to say he wasn't the shooter. Rather, he said he did shoot Bo, but it was because Bo had come at him with a knife. But the jury didn't buy it, and McElroy was convicted. Granted, it wasn't an attempted murder conviction like some had hoped. Rather, he'd just been found guilty of second-degree assault. Either way, though, he was finally going to prison, but it'd be for less than a year. Still, the drama over that piece of candy from a year prior wasn't over. Word spread that Ken McElroy had been sentenced to less than a year for shooting Bobo and Camp in the neck, and people were not happy. The jury says... Skidmore was outraged by what the town regarded as a slap on the wrist for such a brutal attack, and then further outraged when McElroy was freed on appeal after posting a $40,000 bond. Now, a condition of his bond was that he couldn't have any weapons. So when he and Trina came to the town tavern with a carbine and bayonet, people got pissed. Not only was he armed, but he was talking loudly about how he planned to finish off Bo. He figured if Bo couldn't testify against him, the charges would be dropped, and he'd go along his merry way. People were outraged about this clear and public violation of his bond agreement. Brave ones even signed an official complaint submitted to the court. A hearing to determine if his bond should be revoked was scheduled for July 10th, 1981. That same day, residents gathered at the American Legion Hall for a town meeting. The idea was that a group of residents would attend the bond revocation hearing in hopes their presence helped make things stick this time. But they got word that the hearing had been postponed for 10 days. And this was more than just an inconvenience. They discussed how to protect the people who signed the complaint against McElroy. They knew damn well that McElroy was a vengeful guy, that he would target the people who had complained about him. And here, the system was showing them once again that he might well get away with it, too. Now, McFadden, the lawyer, had heard rumblings that he understood to mean things were coming to a head in Skidmore. And I told him about three or four days before, do not go in Skidmore. There's something going on there. And I heard by the grapevine rumors. And of course, when he said, well, nobody could tell me where I can go, I can go anywhere I want to. McElroy knew his court hearing being postponed was like a wound in Skidmore's collective gut. He could have gone home triumphant, but instead he decided to rub salt in that wound. About 60 townspeople were gathered in the American Legion Hall, the red brick building. They were talking about what to do with the town bully. 
At about that same time, Ken Rex McElroy showed up at the bar. They left the American Legion Hall. They went inside. Leave town, they told McElroy. There's a tension, a sense of showdown in the air. McElroy wasn't the type to back down, but even he could sense that something was different this day. He paid for a six-pack, and he and Trina left the bar. The townspeople followed. McElroy slid behind the wheel of his pickup truck. Trina climbed in the passenger seat. No one said a word. This is Trina talking. He hadn't started the pickup yet, but we were just sitting there. I looked at them to see what they was looking at and see if they wanted anything, and they were just staring. Then Trina said she noticed one man in particular. I seen the man go across the street, go to his pickup, take the gun out, and I seen him shoot it. A bullet tore through McElroy's head, killing him instantly. But the gunfire didn't stop. How many shots were ultimately fired isn't clear. Nor is it clear how many people opened fire that day. Most people seem to agree there were two, though possibly three. What is known is that two bullets entered McElroy's head. Trina began screaming, certain she, too, was going to be shot. Someone from the crowd wrenched open the pickup's passenger door and hauled her away to the nearby bank, where they told her to sit still. I still thought they were going to kill me when they took me up to the bank. In fairness, someone at the bank did tell her she'd be next when she started to go for the phone to call the police. But in reality, it seemed that the townspeople had saved her life, even if they'd severely traumatized her. You can hear that trauma as she talked to reporters soon after the shooting. Ms. McElroy, do you plan to stay in Skidmore already now? No, um, no, I do not want to go into county. I don't believe that I'd be safe there. McFadden, the lawyer, said something similar years later. I wouldn't even go up Skidmore now. I wouldn't go through that town. And walk around there. No way. Be a good way for me to get beat half to death, or even worse, you can't tell. Some of those hotheads up there are still very angry. Now, there are different points of view on this case. Some say the legal system failed the people of Skidmore, so they had no choice but to deploy vigilante justice. After all, McElroy literally shot people at close range, and he threatened countless others. Here's some neighbors talking over the years. He was a bad person in a lot of ways. He tortured and, and uh, terrorized. I know all the people here, they want it forgotten, put behind them. People call him a town bully. That's not right. He was a rural terrorist. I have no sympathy for Ken Rex. He scared this poor community half to death during that time to protect myself and my family. I carried a gun, so he brought out the worst in me. But McElroy's family has always seen things differently. As one daughter said, Do I believe that there was bad things that Dad did? Yes. He wasn't a perfect man by far. But they planned that murder. They went in, they had a town meeting, they all sat down together, they decided that they were going to do it, and they done it. After all, as much as people like to say the system failed, it's worth remembering that there were plenty of people who could have testified against McElroy over the years, but who didn't want to get involved. Maybe if the town had banded together to just protect each other, rather than band together to get away with killing him, things might have worked out better. As it stands, a lot of people think the trickle-down effects of McElroy's killing has affected the town in subtle but horrifying ways. The McElroy shooting definitely shriveled the town up. It just sucked it right up. 
This is from the documentary No One Saw a Thing, which explores what killing McElroy did to the community in the long run, what it taught the town's children, who now have children of their own. Through a six-part series, director Avi Belkin draws a line between McElroy's death and a slew of seemingly unrelated violence that followed in Skidmore. I mean, if you think about it, what happened here was sort of a Nightmare on Elm Street scenario in real life. A group of terrorized people killed someone because they felt that going through the proper legal channels hadn't worked. McElroy maybe didn't come back to murder kids in their sleep, like Freddy Krueger did. But Belkin argues that murder's just one of those lines you don't cross without repercussions. Violence begets violence, especially when that violence happens without consequence, which is what happened here. No one has ever been charged in McElroy's shooting. The people who covered it up think they may have been doing a good thing for the community. They didn't realize that their children are going to be negatively affected by this. I think I counted nine mysterious deaths since Ken Rex died. It perpetuates itself. When's the next type of situation going to occur when the community turns on an individual? Whatever should have happened on that hot July day 41 years ago is debatable, but there's no changing what did happen. Ken McElroy was no longer a problem for the city, nor was his family. They quickly moved away. Trina sued the city civilly for wrongful death and settled out of court. Two years later, she remarried a man she stayed with until she died in 2012 of cancer on her 55th birthday. McElroy's legacy hung over her like a shadow the rest of her life, just as it hangs over Skidmore to this day. Thanks to engineer Garrett Tiedemann for recommending this case. To research, I read contemporary news coverage, watched TV newscasts, watched chunks of No One Saw a Thing, read Harry McLean's In Broad Daylight, and watched the 1991 TV movie based on the book, which reminded me how great an actress Cloris Leachman was. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of The Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod, and check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>